Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX News, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into the great Christian thinkers. And of course, this Monday is uh, July 4th. So here in the United States, we celebrate Independence Day, the 4th of July. So happy day of freedom to all of you out there. And let's let's talk a minute about freedom. We are not talking about freedom within the context of to do whatever you want to do, but this great principle given to us, gift given to us to do what we ought to do in the light of our loving relationship with Jesus Christ. So that always has to be um, first and foremost when we think about freedom. And I mention that because this evening we will have the opportunity to talk a little bit about the importance of freedom and uh, freely discussing um, points so as to discover truth, things that are not arbitrary, that is truth, but something to be discovered, huh? So this will be a part of our discussion this evening, and it is Monday evening, so I do have John O'Hare with me. John, great to have you with me another evening. Great to be here again, Joe. Thank you. So, uh, John, this evening we will have the opportunity to talk the stuff of Vatican II primarily through the prism of one Eve uh, Congar, right? A great Dominican, one of the four or five great theologians of the 20th century. We've talked about Romano Gardini. We've talked about um, von Balthasar. We've talked about uh, Henri de Lubach. Certainly, Congar falls into that category. Yes. Um, and like Henri de Lubach, Congar was what is called a paratus or a theological expert at Vatican II. By some accounts, uh, not all accounts, but by some considered to be the most influential theologian at Vatican II. Um, his contributions to the documents on the Church, on uh, ecumenism, on Revelation for sure, and certainly on the Church's relationship to the modern world, he had a lot there to contribute. So um, before we get too far into Vatican II, let's talk briefly about the man himself. Okay. Now, we also had Joseph Rochester and Carl Wojtyla at Vatican II. Oh, yes. But I want to remind you that Yves Congar was older, more experienced than they were at that time. Yes, Now, yes. Yves Congar was born in 1904 in the Sedan in France. That's in the Ardennes Forest, which Germany is very close to it, and we had two world wars going on in his lifetime. He was 10 years old when World War I broke out, and during the war, his mother told him he should take notes on this war, because mm. it was a big deal, mm -hmm. and he did, mm -hmm. and it was a habit that he... Uh, he kept up because he took excellent notes during Vatican II, and if you have uh, six months to read the 1,100 yeah. <laughs> pages of it, then just go right ahead and do it. <laughs> yes. But anyway, uh, it, it's kind of it reminds me a little bit of Madison's notes on the Constitution here on ah, July 4th, yes, because uh, yes. that really explains the debates that went on in the Constitution. His writings go through the debates, personally go through the debates that were going on at Vatican II. So, born in 1904, and uh, felt drawn towards the Church rather early on, and he uh, went into a kind of a, we'll call it a university type, to study for the priesthood. And he studied philosophy for three years at the Institut Catholique in Paris. And then he did some military service during this one year at least of military service. That, was, I guess, was required by a French draft, mm -hmm. shall we say. And uh, then he went back to the seminary, and uh, he was at La Soulichet, which is in Belgium, 
and he was ordained a priest in 1930, and he was interested in ecclesiology, and he opted to be a Dominican. Now, by ecclesiology, John, for our listening audience, what that is is the study of the Church, right? Of the Church. Church, church comes from the Greek ecclesia, which just simply means the Church. So we use that term, ecclesiology, to speak of the Church. So he was interested in ecclesiology. That was especially... And he met a professor there who was a few years older than him, a man named Shainu, another Dominican, and they were buds all through life. So he, he did his Ph.D. work in ecclesiology and philosophy. World War II breaks out, and in 1939, again, he has to go back into the army. He's mobilized. I don't know what he—he's an ordained priest, so I don't know exactly what he did in the army. But in 1940, he is captured by the Germans. So from 1940 to 1945, he's a POW. Well, there goes your theological research, but he yeah. was very active in the camps, whatever POW camps he was in. He survived the war, clearly. You say there, there goes his theological research, and certainly I, I get what you're saying there. But it's interesting, as you say that, um, I have to wonder, <laughs> in those five years, was his theology imbued with a much deeper sense of the Spirit? Huh? I mean, think about it. In those five years as a POW, what he would have had to endure— and now he would have found himself on bended knee. What did Pope Francis just say? All good theology starts on bended knee. Yes, he loses five years in the academic world, per se, but what about that disposition which opens us up to the deeper truths regarding theology? So while he loses five years of academic research, I have to wonder if he gained five years of research insofar as good theology always starts on bended knee. I mean, we have to appreciate his theology as we now look back on it and the many, many rich insights he had. I wonder how many of those insights were influenced by him reflecting um, at different points as a POW into the way in which God works, Yes, if you I will. agree. Now, in the future, he's going to be in Vatican II. He doesn't know this in 1945. Sure. But he knows sure. the last really great consul was... Trent. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the church got formed in a way which is still very active at his time and will be for a couple of, for a decade and a half at least afterward. And here you have a church in which it's rather, shall we say, clerical heavy. And he sees the layman mm-hmm. and he realizes they are really what the church is all about. You know, to quote uh, Cardinal Newman, the church would really look kind of foolish if we didn't have laymen yeah. in, in our ranks. So, <laughs> yes. And he realizes this and he is, this is part of his calling all all through his priesthood. The war comes to an end, and he goes back to his teaching, and I think he's looking for greater lay participation, and he's doing writing about this. Now, Pope Pius XII, God bless him, is our pope. During this time, from, say, 45 to 60, there was a great flowering of Christianity, certainly in the United States. It was a golden age, mm-hmm. and possibly in Europe as well, too. I'm not quite sure about that, because the church did begin to decline in Europe. In 1950, uh, Pope Pius XII came out with an encyclical, Humani Generis. It was one of several encyclicals in which he seemed to, generalizing, wanted the church to be, shall we say, more clerical-oriented. And Yves Congar kind of had writings which kind of crossed this a little bit. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so in 1954, Yves Congar, Chenu, and many others were, shall we say, silenced. I mean, they could still teach, but they, they could no longer publish. And this was kind of kept in force until Pius XII's death in 1958. At that time, Roncalli, Giuseppe Roncalli, was made Pope John the Twenty Third. 
and then he was allowed to become more active, and then John the Twenty-Third, before the Vatican II began, asked Yves Congar to be one of the people that kind of put together the paperwork for the Vatican II. Uh, 1958, Cardinal Ron Colley becomes Pope, and one of the things the Pope has to do is he has to go around and he has to give a talk in all of the major papal churches, there, which there's four, St. Peter's, Mary Major, Lateran, and the last one was St. Paul outside the wall, and that's where he announces, we're going to have Vatican II. Mm-hmm. And people are saying, who, what? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting when, it, when you talk about John uh, the Twenty Third here, um, within the context of moving towards Vatican II, the first thing he did as Pope, the very first thing, was he went to his desk, and there was a large stack of, of stuff, to, things to take care of, right? Well, he knew that there was some politicking going on towards the end of Pius XII's reign, right? So he, <laughs> he looks at this stack, and he knew that at the bottom of the stack was some probably pretty important stuff that those um, who were politicking probably put at the bottom with the hopes that John Twenty-Third, by the time he got to it, well, would just sign off on it, right? He flips that stack upside down Ooh. <laughs> and attends to what but the plan of divine mercy. You see, there was a, a, a piece of paper, John, that, again, those powers that be wanted John the Twenty-Third to just kind of sign off on and, and be done with the plan of divine mercy. But as one personal secretary would recall, he looked at this, the revelations of our Lord given to St. Faustina, and said, no, 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 this is far too important. This must first be researched by the Polish bishops. And of course, who was one of those Polish bishops? But St. John Paul the Great, right? Um, so I speak to this not only in the form of a caveat story, but to appreciate that mercy led his pontificate because Vatican II itself, right, was about God's mercy, as John the Twenty-Third would remind us in his opening homily as he talked about the beauty of mercy, and certainly a word that was very close to the heart of the great Dominican Congar. So we come full circle with this wonderful truth that leads us into a deeper understanding of what Congar is all about, and certainly the pontificate of John the Twenty-Third and the convening of Vatican II. And uh, he was interested. He was quite interested in bringing the laity more involved in the in the Catholic service. Not that he changed the mass, but he was interested in bringing the laity more involved, which yeah. happened in Vatican II. It was a big part of Vatican II. Early on, at the one of the very first sessions, something was going on, and they were setting up their agenda. And a cardinal, Cardinal Leinert from the, uh, I believe from possibly Belgium or France, grabbed the microphone and wanted to have a vote on this agenda. And that changed things for the Vatican II agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm about half right on this. Oh, yeah, and Yves Congar yeah, yeah. was one of his, uh, uh, knew about this and re- totally approved in that. And now Yves Congar has been seen a little bit as, shall we say, generally, left to center. Not so much. I mean, he wanted to change things, but he wanted the church to be church. That we, don't, we don't want to go out and have the church whatever you want to have it. That is what was not his situation at all. No, we, the church has to be the church. We want to open it up to improve it, but mm-hmm. we're, we're not changing any essentials. Yeah, John, you raise a very important point because a lot of what Vatican II was about, and certainly this is drawn out in uh, Congar's journal, in his diary, were the many heated debates. So it's really important for us to understand that um, these debates were about discovering truth. It just wasn't about, um, this is the truth and we're done with it. 
Um, he wasn't debating what was already revealed. You know, I, I can look at this black wall and say it's blue, but that's not up for debating. It's black, <laughs> okay? Um, that's not what Kungar was doing. Kungar wasn't saying this wall is blue. No, he's simply saying, let us look at the church and see how we might better engage the modern world without surrendering itself to truth. Now, this was seen as progressive, but progressive, John, within its proper context. You see, today we use the word progressive, and because it's so politically charged, it has this very negative context. But within the Catholic Church, when we say progressive Catholic, not influenced by its political context, but to simply progress as a human being, we see it in the light of faith and reason, okay? I am only going to, to progress as Joe Holcraft is called to progress in the light of Jesus Christ and the revelation of the Word of God and how it's been handed down to us through sacred tradition. This is how just not Kungar approached Vatican II, but also uh, Wojtyla, Ratzinger, de Lubach, and all the others who were present, present in that context of progressing within the light of revelation. Okay, so when we hear Kungar as left to center, yeah, you're right in saying that that's not the best definition of Kungar because the tendency of how we look at left to center. No, he's progressive, but not in that political context as one might interpret someone going against the teachings of the Catholic Church. No, that is not what this is about. This is about understanding that we progress in the light of how the Holy Spirit works in and through the Church and how the Holy Spirit desires for us to evangelize. What did Benedict XVI say? The church exists to evangelize. So if the church exists to evangelize, let us be open to the Spirit so we might appreciate how the Holy Spirit is calling us to evangelize, huh? I don't want to get off topic here, but there was uh, biblical discussions uh, about, and people began to say, what exactly did the writer have to say, Isaiah, at the time that the people was talking to? Forgetting that actually Isaiah, while he was the author, God was also the author. So therefore, you have to take into account those two people. You just can't, simply can't go on with the human author and try to interpret strictly through him and what he was trying to communicate to the Jews at that time. Mm -hmm. And Kangar and others realize that you know, there, there yeah. is truth here. You just don't go off on your own. Mm -hmm. And uh, we want to get certainly to the side that he was on after the consul, the side of the Communio magazine versus the Concilio magazine. Mm -hmm. And the Communio said, no, wait, wait, the church stands for something. It just isn't what you feel. Yep. Because as you get into the later 60s, there was this strong movement, and that was not Congar. No, it wasn't. And what you're speaking to there, John, as relates to interpreting Isaiah is the distinction between the literal sense and the spiritual sense. If all we had was the literal sense, if, if all we had was the historical context, then all we have is Jesus and not Jesus Christ. Yes. We have the Jesus of history and not the Christ of faith, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, we interpret Scripture in the light of Jesus Christ. That is to say, the letter and the Spirit. Huh? That is to say, ultimately, what is earthly but also what is divine. The Bible is a religious book, and if all we were left with was history— then all we would have is a dead corpse. But no, the Bible is living because it yes. is religious. Yes. And uh, so that is very important and very much something that belongs to the spirit of communio. As you bring up Concilium, John, for listening audience, I think uh, another important point to make would be that the likes of a Congar, de Lubach, Voitia, and, and Ratzinger all agreed that in the end, you cannot perpetuate the spirit of the council in the sense that while councils are sometimes necessary in the life of the church, 
they are also perilous, right? Because they represent moments when the church throws itself into question and pauses to decide some central issue or controversy. Um, here we can think of uh, Nicaea or Chalcedon, you know, which addressed, of course, what we talked about some months ago, John, those crucial issues surrounding Christology, or Trent, which of course wrestled with the many questions surrounding the Reformation. Councils are necessary, but the church also, as Congar and his allies contended, right, turned from with a certain relief to the normal routine of the church, so as to remind themselves that in the end, while councils are very important and give us direction, there is the day-to-day grind that we need to be present to. Right. And yes, councils help give shape and form, but the life of the church doesn't become one perpetual council. Exactly. Because all you have then, John, is suspense and indecision, which is widely problematic. And in the uh, 1400s, the 1500s, there was large segments of the church which wanted to have a consul. Uh, we're talking about an ecumenical consul every 20 years or thereabouts. And yeah. they said, because what does that do? That takes power away from the Pope, for one thing, and puts it into a group of cardinals, bishops. And therefore, you, we have diffusions of what does the church really mean. Mm-hmm. So that did not take place, thank heavens. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we, we, consuls are necessary from time to time. From time to time, because if all you had was... Uh, uh, suspense and indecision, then how can the, the, the church breathe, right? Yes. You know, you had brought up his journal earlier, John, which is um, titled, what, My Journal of the Council, and it is it is quite long, what, 1,100 pages, you yeah. said. <laughs> it's no easy read. You said six months, maybe a year, right? Um, it's fascinating. We say what it would be like to be a fly on the wall. Well, Kingar was very meticulous in writing down the proceedings of each um, decree, of each constitution, of each declaration, he was very meticulous. And we don't only gain insight into what those discussions looked like, um, objectively speaking, but we also get his take. You know, he talks about how some cardinals are a bore, how some theologians talk too much, and how at times the meetings were quote-unquote useless. I mean, he's speaking quite candidly about what he thinks, and while at times it might seem heady, at other times there's a great deal of levity because he does project as a journal would, right, as a journal would, into what he thinks about some of these encounters. And you get um, some nice sound bites and Ratzinger's theological highlights of Vatican II, but that pales in comparison to Kungar's um, journal. Being the smart man he was, he waited many, many years before this journal was oh, published. Yes. Otherwise, Cardinal so-and-so might find out he was a bore. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, but it's a very, it's, it's an excellent, yeah. It really is. And, you know, what were some of the things that really came to the surface in this particular journal and what was at the forefront of these conversations? Well, something we've more or less touched upon as it relates to the importance of the laity, the participation, active participation of the faithful, which we talked about a few weeks ago, yes. huh? the actuoso participatio, the way in which we actively participate um, in and during the Mass. Other things certainly was the universal call to holiness, a liturgy that awakens the people. Again, that's the active participation. Uh, the need for the Church to engage the modern world, that was very important yes. to um, Kungar and Ratzinger and, and others. All of these very much um, were discussed in these proceedings and were more or less highlighted by Kungar. I mean, he didn't have a highlighter per se, but if he did, um, those phrases, active participation, 
engage the modern world, universal call to holiness, a clerical triumphalism you mentioned early yeah. certainly would have been a highlight. Right. Uh, those things were important, and all of this, all of this brings us, John, back to that one word that we always find ourselves talking about because it's what the new evangelization's about, is what Vatican II was about, and that one word is encounter. Yes. Encounter, encounter, encounter. The whole purpose, the whole reason behind Vatican II, if you were to ask me to summarize, it would be for the encounter, for the encounter, that we might have a more personal encounter with Jesus Christ. All 16 of those documents, in the end, were about the encounter. Excellent and very well put. I just might add on that uh, shortly thereafter, after the console closed, we did change to a Mass in English. Mm-hmm. And that, that uh, there was controversy over it, but we now have a Mass in English, and I think it's pretty well accepted by people. I don't think they want to go back to the Latin Mass. I hope we have the Latin Mass, and it is around, it is available. But I think the, uh, the Mass in the vernacular is, is the way things are going. Mm-hmm. One other little aside, I believe the console was uh, conducted entirely in Latin, which at that time priests had to know. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you have a Vatican III, I don't know what language they're going to use. It might yeah. be Italian, but Latin may not be it. I remember that when Pope Benedict XVI retired, he announced his retirement in Latin. And a lot of the cardinals there said, what's he saying? Yeah, What's yeah, that? yeah. <laughs> there you go. You know, it's interesting, John, you talk about the Mass in English, because I really think that highlights that one word, yes. encounter. I mean, the questions were posed by some of these theologians and, and by some cardinals. How can we engage the, the lay faithful if they don't know the language that we're speaking? Literally, right? So let's put this into a language that can be understood so that our active participation um, in both mind and heart might be, well, active. The mind has to understand what is being said. And so this was just a foundational point. Now, it is interesting, as you mentioned, Benedict Sixteenth, he did give a nod to the importance of the Latin Mass because he did and does see that there is a beauty in the Latin. Yes. Right? Because the Latin is the language of the Church. And so there's something to be said about the Latin. So for Benedict XVI, he was wanting to encourage the lay faithful to be present to that to the extent that they might be called to, to go to a Latin Mass. Well, if you want to be a good Catholic, you need to have two things. You need good liturgy, and you need good catechesis. Mm-hmm. And you better know what the faith is about, and good liturgy, because that brings us together as a group, is important. Mm-hmm. And Congar was very aware of that, because liturgy is a big part of what calls us to our church. And encounter has to be a part of that liturgy, whether it's in Latin or whether it's in the vernacular. The people who are there need to feel an encounter with Christ. We have the Eucharist, we have Christ right on the altar. We need an encounter. Amen to that, John. I'm looking at a diagram right now, John, that I pulled up, and it came up in the journal The Sower 14, 15 years ago, and I thought it did the best job of um, understanding the documents of Vatican II. So I just want to, by way of close, explain this diagram. And the diagram is a diagram of a wheel, okay? And at the heart of this wheel are the two documents, the two constitutions, Sacrosanctum Concilium and De Verbum, okay, the constitutions on the liturgy and divine revelation. So the Bible and the liturgy are at the heart of the encounter, right? And then outside that circle are the other two constitutions, Gaudium et Spes, which is the Church in the Modern World, and Lumen Gentium, which speaks to 
the dogmatic nature of the church, right? So you have four constitutions on the church in the modern world, the liturgy, scripture, and essentially ecclesiology, the dogmatic nature of the church. And then you have three subset categories. The church in her external relations, so the non-Christian churches and uh, religions and Jews. Then you have ecumenism. Then you have the Eastern churches in union with Rome. And then you have religious liberty. Okay, so those are the church's external relationships. Okay, then you have the church in mission, the training of priests, education, social communication, and missionary activity. Okay, so you have external relations, and then you have the church in mission. And the last subset, if you will, speak to the people of God, right? Who the bishops are, their role, who the priests are, their role, who the laity are, their role in the life of the church, and lastly, who the religious are, religious communities, and their role in the life of the church. What a great diagram. And so you have the four constitutions and then the subsequent 12 decrees and declarations. And now, while the four constitutions speak to the universal call to holiness, certainly we can also say that all 16, in the end, deal with that one word, encounter. Because if I'm a religious, and I'm studying the document on religious is perfecte caritatis, and I'm studying um, this document, I'm going to better understand what it means to have a living, personal relationship with Jesus Christ in the light of the many insights given to me from this document. So this is just a snapshot for a listening audience. Certainly, there's so much more that could be said um, on all of these documents, on all of these constitutions, declarations, and decrees. We just, again, speak to these briefly because of Kungar's role in them and with them. Yeah. Um, he, by the way, he died in 1994, so he lived a, a long life. Mm, and, yes, very long life. And again, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, a man who had a heart for Christ, a man who had a heart for the church, and a man who had a deeper understanding of the role of the church in the modern world, like John Paul II, yeah. like Ratzinger, and I dare say like Pope Francis, and we have to appreciate these men for who they are. So, yeah, John, I encourage our listening audience, if they have a spare six to eight to 12 <laughs> months to pick up the, the work titled, what is it, My Journal of the Council. My uh, Journal of the Council. Yeah, yes, my, yeah, my Journal of the Council. And um, if for no other reason, to have it on your bookshelf, that when you might have a question about what was going on during Vatican II, you can go to a certain page and, yeah. and find it. All right, very good. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.